This is Floor Fight, the podcast devoted exclusively to the topic of delegate math and the potential for an open or contested convention in the 2016 race. I'm Patrick Ruffini with the Republican research and analytics firm Echelon Insights, and you can find me at Patrick Ruffini on Twitter. With me is Daniel Nashanian, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Chicago and contributing editor to Daily Coast Election. Um, and you can find him at Daniel on Twitter. Uh, now, because this week, um, big developments in the Republican race um, um, uh, mean that there will be no uh, contested convention uh, in um, 2016. Um, as a result of that, um, I think we feel comfortable saying this will probably be our last regular episode, um, but over the next few weeks, we will be interviewing um, various players in the process and taking your questions on Twitter um, and issuing uh, one or more special episodes, because um, there are clearly a lot of implications for um, what happens in the future, what happens in 2020, will Republicans, after the drama of this primary season, change um, this process? Um, so we will both be doing those interviews and, um, I think, taking some of your questions about this process um, and what you think might happen um, moving forward. And if you want to tweet those at us um, uh, using the hashtag FloorFight, um, we will get to those in a special episode. Um, Daniel, with that out of the way, um, why don't you take us through um, what happened this week? Yeah, uh, I'm especially excited to take all your questions and have the opportunity to to interview in future episodes because because this was such a quick ending, such a quick such a quick ending, um, and and such quick losses for for Cruz and Kasich. So when we recorded our first podcast, it was just five weeks ago. It was the day after the Wisconsin primary, which may well have been the high point of Cruz's chances to force to force this to go to a contested convention. And the high, high point of our of all of our collective um, hopes of, fi of finally getting uh, the first contested convention in American politics in 40, in 40 years. And then over a period of just 15 days, um, everything went as well as it possibly could have for, the, for, um, for, for Trump. He swept uh, the Northeastern states and then Indiana. And then when I mean sweep, I just don't mean he won eight states. I mean, he won nearly every county in all eight states and 69 of 70 congressional districts over these um, over this 15-day period, and often by huge margins. Very few of those states, very few of those districts were were were, were even competitive. Um, and the result, as as you all know, is that on Tuesday night and Wednesday afternoon, Cruz and Kasich announced that they were suspending their suspending their spending their campaign, um, which has made Trump the presumptive nominee um, weeks, weeks before the voting is over um, and weeks before California. Um, so I think one, one, one question I immediately had when Cruz announced his uh, decision on Tuesday night was, why now? Why, why do this so long before California? So I think that's something, um, that's something I want to talk with you about, Patrick, um, during this podcast. And of course, on the other side, um, the Clinton-Sanders race is going on, with Sanders staying in the race thanks to his win, um, th thank thanks to his win by six percentage point in Indiana primary um, on Tuesday. So, Patrick, what was your reaction to, to this week and to Trump's uh, very rapid march towards the presumptive, the status of a presumptive nominee? Yeah, so I think we had, what we had seen all throughout the primary season 
was um, a lack of momentum. And I think you still see a lack of momentum on the Democratic side, but the momentum really accelerated in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I, I still think that the, you know, you go back two weeks to New York, that that outcome was baked in the cake for a long time. That was Donald Trump's home state. Um, you had several areas in the state which were um, very pro-Trump demographically, um, attitudinally, and um, it, that ended up as a result pretty close to what you would have expected um, him to get. Um, if you allocated all of the undecideds, obviously, um, you know, obviously that. And, and, and I think that what this has indicated um, to me is that, um, but even because he hit that 60% threshold, um, it just started to feel like, um, uh, and Cruz and Kasich were so far behind that even though this was Trump's home state and later uh, we have primaries in Trump's home region, and that it just seemed to me they were so far behind that it seemed to start to get like, well, is are they going to win any other states uh, mm -hmm. moving forward? Um, uh, because Trump's numbers all of a sudden um, in, in all of the states are, are now over 50 percent. Remember, prior to New York, he had not had one single state um, over 50 percent. Um, so I think in terms of in terms of all of this, um, I think that New York was something that was pretty close to despite the fact, again, despite the fact that it was his home state. It was pretty close to the result that probably would have happened. Now, I think that there may have been more that the other candidates could have done to try and maybe push Trump below 50 percent if they had campaigned. Um, but that set off a cascade uh, into the um, April 26th state, the Acela um, corridor primaries, where in, in um, at least two states he actually performed better than he did in his home state in Rhode Island and Delaware. Um, and in all of the other states, he um, he uh, performed mid to high 50 percent. And in Pennsylvania, which is, I think, the thing that nobody really expected and nobody was really counting on a few weeks before, he was able to get at least 35 of the 54 unbound delegates elected on his slate um, or and or uh, people who uh, had pledged to vote for the district winner. That was a factor I think nobody had really considered when we mentioned it um, on our on our first show. It was more around the idea that, you know, will Cruz or somebody who is well organized um, uh, be able to push through a delegate slate? And I think we maybe dismissed the idea that either campaign would actually field a delegate slate, would be able to push a delegate slate. But in the end, those 35 delegates really dramatically altered the math um, for Indiana. Um, and for the upcoming um, states, where, as you said last week, it really rendered a win in Indiana unnecessary for Trump. And the mm -hmm. fact that he got the victory in Indiana um, was really kind of a death knell um, for the other mm -hmm. campaigns as a so, result. Uh, uh, so what I'm hearing you say is that uh, perhaps there was a mistake made by either Cruz or Kasich or more generally by, by the PACs that had money to spend against Trump starting mid-March to to give up on the north on the northeast and that's making me um, so the one, one question is whether anything could have been done whether Cruz and Kasich were the type of candidates um, that who could have done that much better in in the northeast but it does remind me of of what we were talking about with Rubio in in January February right of whether 
uh, Rubio's famous three uh, three to one bid of of not having or not winning the first two states and then winning South Carolina, um, or, uh, or or Giuliani's efforts in two thousand eight to wait until the Florida primary, yeah. uh, many weeks into the process to win. Um, the the or the criticism against both is that was that you just can't have that have have that many weeks without victory. You can't have that many weeks letting someone else bid, uh, uh, build up steam. Um, and 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 I, and we've always talked about that in the context of the early part of the primary season. But is this so? Is this what happened here? That there was a mistake made to think that that um, that there could be a month long period essentially between Wisconsin and Indiana where everyone would just let Trump do his thing and then pick off in early May where they left off in early April. Well, you kind of there was kind of this illusion that this was happening for Cruz in April, right, with Wisconsin, Utah. Um, well, you first of all had the immediately after March 15th, you had Arizona and Utah, which is kind of a split decision. Um, uh, uh, Trump winning Arizona, but that sort of being baked because of the high amount of early voting that happened and uh, Rubio still being on the ballot and still attracting significant support. Um, but then you remember you had the cascade of, OK, he wins Utah very big, which was sort of um, assumed because of you know, Mormon, the Mormon community being not um, particularly friendly to Donald Trump. Then you go into Wisconsin and then you have all of the narrative around uh, Cruz is winning on bound delegates. He's winning conventions. He's winning in Wyoming. He's winning in Colorado. Uh, and the prediction markets um, gosh, got very close to 50-50 on the nomination at one point. Um, but delegate selection does not equal delegate allocation. And in the end, I think uh, Trump won where it mattered. But I, I do uh, firmly agree that... Um, that you know in a nominating process it's not just about the quote-unquote swing states um like it is in a general election um you know i think the a lot of the groups um were extremely um um you know very focused on indiana because that was decisive and it ended up being decisive but in the end indiana was decisive because um of what happened in new york and in the Acela Corridor primaries, um, that that turned out to be very influential in terms of not even, you know, really giving Cruz a shot um, to compete in Indiana as a result of that. And I think that um, the, the, nature, the sequential nature of these contests and the winner-take-all nature of these contests, either at the congressional district level or at the um, statewide level, um, means that momentum coming out of um, blowout victories in your home region um, means that weighs very heavily uh, on future contests, including in contests where you shouldn't have been, you know, Trump should have probably gotten, you know, if this were March, Trump probably would have gotten 40 percent of the vote in Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, he got 50, uh, 53, 54 percent. Um, so that um, turns out to be very influential. And in the, in the, in the same, same way that this kind of happened to Rubio, as you mentioned in the process, um, that the reason why Cruz and Kasich were even lasted this long was that they won their home states and they won all of nearly um, or a lot of the delegates um, from their home state. 
uh, in Cruz's case, delegate-rich Texas um, was of great benefit to him um, in terms of allowing him to, on the night of Super Tuesday, say, I have beaten Donald Trump consistently. Um, I have um, won uh, nearly as many delegates as Donald Trump on Super Tuesday, and you should pick me and not Rubio. <laughs> and uh, the fact that those contests came very early in the process really kind of shuttered uh, Rubio's momentum heading into his home state contest, which he lost. Obviously, Kasich winning his home state um, kept him in the contest for longer. And Trump winning his home state, um, uh, you know, really kicked off his momentum heading into the latest series of contests. So I, it's very curious to me. I don't necessarily believe that home state <laughs> a moment, with the exception of you should win your home state, that home state momentum should decide <laughs> what momentum should be throughout the rest of the primary process, but it has in, in very big ways. So what other, so, so, so this is one ex possible explanation of what happened between March and early April and late April. So what other, um, what other, what other uh, factors do you think could have played out? Because if you look at the Wisconsin results, Trump got 35 percent, and then he got above 50 in every state after that, and 53 percent in Indiana, which was meant to be the state that people were comparing to Wisconsin. So I think one, I think one, I think one factor is that maybe there was a, uh, maybe there was um, an effect, maybe or maybe people on underestimated um, Trump after Wisconsin because so much of what happened in Wisconsin was due to the unique, the Cruz's unique dominance in the suburbs of Milwaukee, especially. Uh, by when I say unique, I mean that he just hadn't performed at that level um, in in all in in almost anywhere other than you. you Utah that I can think of, or maybe some parts of Texas. But even then, um, when he he won the suburbs of Milwaukee against Trump by thirty uh, or forty points. Um, uh, I'm looking at the results now. Some in some count in some large counties, he won. Uh, he beat Trump by 40 points. So I think there was this effect where there was this unique, uh, this unique constellation of effects based on uh, a talk radio, based on uh, based on the the history of the suburbs of Milwaukee, or based on the amount of money that was being put in that created this effect in Wisconsin that wasn't reproduced in Indiana. But 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 what else? The sort of as one maybe very like like looking at. Just the difference between Indiana and Wisconsin, but that doesn't just explain the magnitude of Trump's jump. Yeah. So, what so what other factors could there be for for what happened? So, I think that <clears throat> voters in general, nationally, tuned out to a large degree after March fifteenth. Um, um, and, and you know, and I think you look at things. I look at like things like Google searches or things like that, where the level of enthusiasm and energy kind of fades a little bit after those contests. And it's not just, um, oh, people tune. I mean, it's rational. I think almost two-thirds of the country had voted by that point. The, the calendar really slowed down in, um, in, uh, from March 15th through Wisconsin, through New York, where there were very few delegates actually being allocated or pledged delegates or primaries being, you know, contested in that period. And so people weren't... Um, paying as much attention um, to the process. As a result, this vacuum uh, at the time got filled up with, at the time, 
pretty pro-cruise news in terms of what was going to happen in terms of a second ballot, um, all of this, all of this stuff, which, number one, I think allowed Trump to push back with this rigged uh, deal narrative. And mm. I think that regardless of his uh, his statements on policy may be uh, not very correct. But I think all, one, one thing you have to say for Donald Trump is that every uh, commentary that he has had on process has been completely on point. <laughs> uh, you know, and I would say like, uh, you know, every time like he gives one of his press conferences um, post, a, post a primary win, he's always making some observation about the process that's almost a very inside baseball observation. But is true is accurate and i think that um as a an observer of politics and as the republican nominee now um he has shown himself skilled at that part of the process and in particular uh, latching on to this uh the game is rigged against me um you know particularly after the colorado results um that may have potentially helped him um if you look at um uh, gallup released uh, this week um, a set of its favorability numbers um, for the candidates and you really see trump really uh, you know he 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 reached his minimum in march uh, right around there was a lot of intensity around the campaign particularly around super tuesday and gradually grew um, from March 15th forward. Meanwhile, Cruz, um, right after the New York win, really dropped off a cliff in terms of national favorability amongst Republicans. Um, so really that penalty where he start, it starts to seem like, well, he can't break 15% in a lot of these Northeastern states. What's going on? We should nominate somebody who can't break 15% in the Northeast. Um, you know, and, and granted, like, yes, it's, in the, it was never going to be his strongest region, but it seemed like, um, a kind of a stretch, um, to say that we're going to nominate somebody who, um, is not performing, um, very well, even in their worst region of the country. I think your, I think your point about the rig, the, the rig deal, um, process point that Trump was making, um, is, strikes me as, as important, it goes back to what I was talking about with uh, Alexandra um, Jaffe in our interview segment last week, when she was saying that she was talking to uh, to voters in Indiana who were turned off by who were turned off by the deal and who cited it as a reason why they were strengthened in their choice for Trump. The problem with, with individual interviews like that is that it's hard to know whether the person saying it was already a Trump supporter yeah. that you're just going to say anything or not. But I think we we. We did hear a lot of that in the past, in the past, um, in the past week. That we we did hear a lot of reports of of voters not not uh, voters being or voters at least saying they were turned off. But I mean, I'm kind of of two minds on that, right? On the one hand, that that contributed to the narrative that everyone was colluding against Trump in this nefarious way, um, which was particularly strong narrative in, in the deal because it came uh, it came in the weeks after the Colorado convention, the Wyoming convention, the North Dakota conventions that that Trump was using to make that to, to make that point already. On the other hand, it kind of was a necessary deal for Cruz to have any shot, and I'm not um, I'm, I'm not sure it didn't work um, in the sense that Kasich did drop um, Kasich did drop. Um, after the deal, so I have so two reasons I say that is one that he was much in the polls he was 
between uh, between for fourteen percent and sixteen seventeen percent um, in late April, and he ended up with seven point five percent. But also because uh, when when the first results were coming in, um, Kasich was much higher than he ended up at, which implies that the early results. He, in, in, in the early voting, he was um, he was higher than it ended up being in the regular voting, yeah. in the uh, election day voting. So that does, um, and we saw the same thing in other states, the difference between early voting and regular and election day voting. Um, and that does imply that there was a shift away from Kasich in, in the final week. Now, that didn't help Cruz close the gap. Maybe there's no way of knowing really whether, um, whether maybe those Kasich voters didn't all go to Cruz. Maybe someone... Um, someone to Trump, but they, but 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 that that was a necessary condition for Cruz to have a shot against Trump was for yeah. Kasich to diminish, and to some degree that worked. It just was too late. Um, it just was too late to form any type of um, anti-Trump wall. Um, yeah. So I so I I think it's I think that's I share your view on that. Um, I mean, if you actually look at the ratio of Cruz to Kasich support in the early polls versus the election results. I mean, it was a very clear drop for Kasich. Um, I, I do think, though, for that to have worked fully and obviously for Cruz to have won in Indiana and for all of the out, I mean, there was over six million dollars in outside spending uh, against Donald Trump in Indiana um, uh, for all of that to have worked. Um, you really needed Cruz to be in striking distance, ultimately. I mean, I think that none of this really uh, functions and operates the way it should or in an optimal way unless um, a candidate is within striking distance. And the fact that he was sinking daily, from what I was hearing, he was kind of sinking daily in the polls. Um, So I think that, but I think from the standpoint of maybe pragmatic anti-Trump voters did go to Cruz. Um, it, It was just a sense of a broader um group of voters uh really sensing you know trump is actually probably going to be the nominee (laughs) number one um and number two you know i do think the quid pro quo nature of how it was announced um probably didn't help in that um you had coordinated statements coming out from the campaigns um i had mentioned last week you know there have been previous examples in the in this election or john uh sorry marco rubio said uh vote for Kasich in ohio and uh there was no real reciprocity to that i mean uh, it was actually uh, it was actually kind of a selfish selfless gesture uh, on his part um but um but um but the, the fact that it was seemed so coordinated uh, mm-hmm. probably underscored this narrative that it was rigged in some in some form Mm-hmm. There, oh, there was a CNN poll out this week where uh, 91% of Republican voters thought that Trump was going to be their nominee, uh, which is a remarkably high number, given that there was uncertainty before Indiana, certainly as to whether this could go to contest convention. And I think you're right that when, when you talk about inevitability, that when 91% of primary voters think that someone's going to be their nominee, it just becomes hard to see the coalition a coalition to beat that person, um, beat that person, and the and the energy needed and the attention you would need. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, um, I wanted to ask you about um, an interesting tweet you had um, on uh, on on election night that pointed to the victory of Todd Young in the Senate primary in Indiana um, against uh, uh, Martin Stutzman. Um, 
as as evidence that this this wasn't just an anti-establishment night. So, or, or could you say more about 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 that? So, a what well, what happened in, in the Senate primary, but more specifically, what that tells us about about what is happening in the presidential election and, and and why Trump is winning if 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 we're not seeing similar echoes in other parts of the ballot. Sure. Um, well, I I, I kind of say that to underscore the fact that. I think there's this misperception that Donald Trump is this anti-establishment candidate. I actually, when you look at his coalition of voters, it is, I think, largely comprised of the same people who coalesced behind Mitt Romney at the end of the primary campaign. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's new people. There's there's more of a hard-edged tone to it. Um, it's not the same set of policies. But it is lower information voters, people who have not necessarily been as engaged in the process, who um, frankly don't um, necessarily take the time to pay as much attention to these niche candidates, to candidates who come from the more conservative side of the party, who represent um, specific interests within the Republican Party. So you had in, in Indiana, you had a Senate primary between Congressman Todd Young, and Congressman Marlon Stutzman, um, young, representing sort of the more mainstream, conservative um, uh, primary candidate, um, endorsed by groups like the Chamber of Commerce, things like things of that nature. Um, Stutzman being the candidate of the Club for Growth, and we should also endorse Ted Cruz, um, more conservative-leaning, uh, more Tea Party-leaning. And the argument, I, I think, to me is, you know, how... We all, how the media is defining establishment is very different than sort of the reality of uh, how establishment is defined in and establishment is thought of in the Republican uh, primary electorate. That mm-hmm. these ideological Tea Party candidates, people assume that Donald Trump is sort of um, being a nominee who comes from, who has some extreme policy positions and being a nominee who, um, does not come from the quote unquote establishment mean that, um, this is the result of years and years of tea party agitation within the Republican party. It's actually, you know, I think in many ways, Ted Cruz more embodied that tea party, um, wing, and also embodies the limits of it. Um, and we saw that, I think, particularly in uh, the Indiana primary, where in the end, you know, to Cruz being a candidate who um, won Iowa, uh, won caucuses, won at conventions, won with these activists and uh, people who show up to these things. But in terms of being able to appeal to a majority coalition of voters, um, fell short to Trump's celebrity and uh, Trump's dominance of the media and also the sense of inevitability around Trump that is normally what you see with the more establishment candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this, this gets, this, all this gets um, built to what interests me really um, today and interested me immediately when Cruz announced that he was dropping out, which is why... Um, which is why he is he dropping out now, and what happened um, to Cruz to make him drop out? So I think we've just had a lot of we just have raised a lot of um, arguments that explain why he wasn't doing well. But so if you look at if you look specifically at what happened um, 
in Indiana, in Indiana itself. So, uh, and as votes started being counted, it became clear very quickly that you know, the question wasn't going to be whether Cruz could win, but whether he would win any counties. Uh, his first counties in four weeks, and and he did in fact. He won a few counties, um, in, including the one that contains Fort 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 Wayne. But that's really all about he had going for him in Indiana, and this was really the state that he had set his sights on for a month. And it's importantly the state where he announced his deal with Carly Fiorina, um, which we haven't really talked about, which I think says maybe a lot about about how important it ended up um, looking in in the week in the week since it was announced. Um, but so definitely it was a terrible day. He was supposed to do well in Indiana. He did terribly. It was a terrible few weeks. He just won. He won just two of 270 bound delegates at stake in the last eight states. That's two out of 270, whereas Trump won 258 and Kasich won 10. Um, so definitely it was a terrible stretch, a terrible day. But 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 why did Cruz decide to leave at this moment um, in time um, beyond the fact that he had just lost this one state? Indiana, after all, is not um, you know is not is not one of the most uh, is not one of the biggest states in the country. So so what explains his choice in your opinion? Uh, well, I think like if you actually were to game out, I think prior to let's say New York, um, if you were to game out the rest of the states, I don't think we can realistically say that Trump has won anything he shouldn't have won. Um, I mean, I think Indiana would have been close, um, but I I had had Indiana as being a Trump state. Maybe he wins narrowly in Indiana, but I'd had it as being a Trump state. Um, And moving forward, there were a lot of states, or at least a few states, that were probably going to be for Cruz in terms of Nebraska probably would have been demographically favorable to Cruz, um, possibly the Pacific Northwest, although that was unclear um, just simply because uh, that's not necessarily an area Cruz would have done well in, um, Trump not necessarily doing well in there. So I don't think it's a, it's a matter of um, Trump uh, being, um, you know, winning places he shouldn't have won. The question is the margins coming out of these states um, being so decisive um, for Donald Trump. The fact that you had the Pennsylvania unbound delegates situation uh, where they were clearly for Trump and altered the delegate math. And so in the end, um, uh, that if, if Trump just won all of the states that, um, that he, um, you know, I, by my math, um, that if Cruz wins all the states that he should win from here on out, or Trump loses all the states that he should win, wins all the states that he should win, Trump at this point with those Pennsylvania delegates would only need 67 of 172 California delegates um, to get over uh, 1237, a clear majority. He would need only a bare majority um, to get there only with pledged delegates. Um, so we would need 110 out of the 172 to get there only with pledged delegates. And that's n- without uh, winning in states like Nebraska, uh, in states like Washington, in states like South Dakota and Montana, both of which are winner take all. Now, Trump, Cruz may have looked forward um, you know, they may have had some internal polling around Nebraska, for example, that showed he was losing even there. And frankly, it gets very hard. I mean, once he starts losing uh, those states, if he were to lose Nebraska and if he were to lose Washington state, um, uh, both being sort of winner take most type of situations, um, then 
Trump could still win the nomination without any delegates from California. So it became just a very high uphill climb, um, particularly as their numbers eroded um, because of this momentum. So uh, I have the same I have the same math as in um, all all that Trump needed go- going going forward was a win in New Jersey in West Virginia and and less than half of the California delegates. So I agree I agree with that. And then he could have afforded a loss in Nebraska, Oregon, Washington, Montana, New Mexico, South Dakota, uh, which is just a terrible situation to be in for Cruz, given what had just, had just happened in the past three weeks. For Trump to now just need. Two, now, 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 now just need two wins and, and one good state in California um, and, and lose the rest. That obviously was a terrible map. Um, I just wonder, the, the but I have, the, maybe, maybe I don't really fully believe the but, but I just want to raise it, is that it was still, at this, the moment Cruz dropped out, it still was dependent on California, right? Um, unless, it, so Trump could have diminished the importance of California further by winning states in which Either we, did, either we had no information on polls um, or where Cruz had looked better in polls, yes, but, um, but it's still, at the, at the moment where he dropped out, it still looked like California could be decisive and it wouldn't have taken that much for Cruz to win a lot of delegates in California. It would have taken um, a victory by maybe high, high single digits for uh, maybe a lot of the districts to fall on his side. So that, that, that seems like maybe just saying that makes you realize how improbable um, that that become because Trump had such a large lead in California polls. Um, but I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just asking and just wondering whether with five weeks to go before the California primary, um, whether, uh, wh- whether, whether it was as baked in as who's dropping out implies or may or, or will make us think in retrospect i i think that uh you know there was a poll that came out in the week before indiana and california that showed trump 34 points ahead previously he maybe the optimistic polls for him had had maybe him up by 15 18 points so there was clearly a shift and it was also clearly a shift um happening in a way that there wasn't going to be some big event that um, was going to turn the tide. Um, you know, maybe a victory in Indiana would have th- turned the tide, and he could have uh, soldiered on uh, and potentially turned things around. Um, but from what we tended to see post March 15th, there's a lot less intensity in the public mind, at least around the primary process, um, and uh, fewer opportunities uh, with relatively small states between now and California, few opportunities for people to have an aha moment that, oh my God, Donald Trump is not going to be the nominee or Donald Trump is in serious trouble. We may have had that chance in Wisconsin. It kind of slipped away. Um, But I I think ultimately the lack of intensity, the momentum sort of being what it was. And I think it's just a different calculation when if you're facing a situation where you're not going to accumulate any you may not he may not have accumulated if things had kept going the way they were he may not have accumulated any more delegates um and so i think that avoiding that fate even if and even if he had accumulated delegates it's unclear whether or not you know he would have kept trump under um the 1237 although i would argue that it was you know possible um but not possible 
with the momentum shift that had occurred, certainly as a result of the Acela primaries, and certainly would would have further hastened um, with the Indiana win. I think uh, I think that one that one reason I agree that it's extremely improbable, even though the math wasn't entirely wasn't entirely off, is that uh, in the past week alone, we saw a lot of signs that GOP officials were just not as clearly on the anti-Trump, anti-Trump uh, uh, bandwagon as they needed to be for Cruz to really pull it off. And I think, I think Cruz was um, as sensitive to that as any results he had in Indiana. So what I'm, what I'm thinking of first is, so obviously you talked about the Pennsylvania, uh, the Pennsylvania unbound delegates, um, but a week ago we weren't exactly sure how many would be committing to Trump. And there, was, there were many more who were publicly willing in the past week since our podcast, who were willing publicly to say, yes, I'm going to vote Trump, even though I hadn't said that before the vote, then I think we had expected. Um, so it wasn't just reports that said that Trump won a lot. People were coming out publicly. And, um, and then, so that's one part of the equation, the Pennsylvania numbers, but also a lot of uh, party leaders in the past week made news by um, made news by being extremely, by being much more critical of Cruz than of Trump. So that maybe the, the, the one that got the most um, press was, um, was, was uh, former speaker John, former speaker John Boehner, uh, who compared Cruz to Lucifer in the flesh. Um, and said that I've never worked with a more miserable son of a bitch in my life. Um, that's uh, and then John Huntsman, the former Utah governor who ran for president eight, four years ago, said that we've had enough intra-party fighting. And he's not exactly the kind of person you would expect to be favorable favorable to Trump. And then the, to me, the most interesting person, um, the most interesting person to take an anti-cruise line was Judd Gregg. So Judd Gregg is the former New Hampshire senator who Obama tried to nominate to his cabinet in 08, but then Gregg accepted, but then withdrew. Um, so why Gregg is particularly interesting is that, Joe, is that Jeb Bush had named him one of his uh, the delegates from New Hampshire. So Gregg was supposed to go to the, to the, to the convention. And, and our expectation was, of course, the people that Jeb Bush is naming um, as his delegates especially if they're unbound, as Greg was, of course they're going to be the first, the most obvious people to be on the anti-Trump anti-Trump campaign in Cleveland, right? They're the most obvious people to coordinate anti-Trump, anti-Trump efforts. But here, Greg said that, and I'm, I'm quoting Greg, and I presume I would vote for, for the Republican nominee if it is Trump, but Cruz should be nowhere near the presidency. And a few days after saying that, Greg announced that he would not go at the convention at all so that he wouldn't be so implying that he was less, he just didn't want to be part of an effort to try and um, help Cruz. So that was, that was such a, a striking moment that the people that Jeb Bush was indoors Cruz were, not, were nominating were not willing to, um, were, 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 were not only not willing to fight for Cruz, but were actually more comfortable with Trump. Um, and, and we also saw this in New Hampshire with this bizarre episode happened this week where, uh, where um, the Republican state, the Republican state committee chair, 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 chairwoman Jennifer Horn proposed a slate of who would fill the slots of the New Hampshire, uh, the the slots that New Hampshire would have on the key convention committee. So we've been talking about these, the rules committee, the credentials committee, um, and the slate had no Trump had no Trump supporter because Horn was trying to get all of the anti-Trump 
uh, candidates, all the anti-Trump people of the state delegation to vote for this anti-Trump slate and essentially exclude Trump, Trump supporters from any of these key committees. So as you would expect, Trump immediately started protesting. Um, he's, and he's, uh, the co-chairman of his campaign says, said that Horn has a sick obsession with Trump. Um, and, and there was all this pressure, but instead of, uh, in, instead of digging in and, 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 and sticking with her slate, Jennifer Horn announced that she would cancel the vote after it had happened. And after there, there were some reports, um, in the press that she had won the vote and, 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 she, and she, and she canceled it. And so one, and so the reason I'm bringing this up is that this was a mini version of what had to happen in Cleveland. This, what happened in New Hampshire was exactly what Cruz forces had to be able to coordinate. They had to coordinate every possible anti-Trump delegate being willing to pick a fight, a floor fight, against Trump, willing to exclude him from committees, willing to vote against the rules he's proposing, etc. And if this isn't happening in New Hampshire, which is um, a favorable state to the extent that the state party was clearly not favorable to Trump there, then it's, it raised huge questions as to who would have who would have the the standing? Who would have the who would have the the power? Who would be able to do the coordination efforts to pull this off in Cleveland? Um, so that's so I think the, this was my red flag of like, wow, this is actually not this is actually not looking very good for Cruz just because I don't think he has is able to coordinate this on the on the floor of Cleveland. So uh, there was actually another indicator of that uh, in North Dakota where you actually had interviews with delegates who remember we had a big show about North Dakota and talked about it extensively on one of our first uh, shows and um, what we saw there was uh, you know you had uh, particular delegates who um, were elected on Cruz's slate who said I'm not sure I'm now uncommitted I really don't know um, this was prior to Indiana, um, but uh, people who were being sent to Cleveland ostensibly as Cruz delegates were wavering um, in their support of Cruz um, on um, on the ballot. Um, they were publicly quoted as such. But I think that the, what you mentioned in, with Judd Gregg and John Huntsman is part of a larger uh, narrative and a larger uh, issue uh, with the Republican establishment. Ted Cruz is somebody who is young, um, is going to be around for a while. Um, he may run in 2020. Donald Trump is seen as somebody who's maybe a one-time deal. Um, yes, he's the Republican nominee, um, but most people expect that to last for six months. And then one way or the other, um, Donald Trump goes away in some form or does not have a movement um, behind him in the same way that Ted Cruz has. And I, I'm not even suggesting that Ted Cruz has a movement. He is simply the latest leader of a movement that has been very active within the Republican Party uh, in terms of uh, the Republican, sorry, the conservative groups and um, the conservative movement in Washington. And so I think in for many of for many people, a Cruz nomination um, would have meant um, in some way a lasting defeat um, for the center-right Republican establishment in Washington at the hands of an organized 
um, conservative movement that has, again, been around for 40 years. And I think many people couldn't stomach that. Uh, re relative to Trump, which, okay, we may lose this election, uh, we can write off this election, um, but after 2016, um, we don't have to deal with this anymore, and we can go back to the way things were before. I think, frankly, that's delusional, <laughs> but I think that was the mindset uh, that um, with Cruz, uh, Trump obviously being an awful outcome for them from the perspective of um, saying things that would alienate um, voters and would turn voters off the Republican Party potentially for a generation. Uh, that's still very much uh, in the cards. I mean, that possibility um, is still very much of an open question in my mind. Versus Cruz, who represented um, sort of the leader of this institutional insurrection against the Republican establishment that was going to continue um, for years and years to come. I, and, and I entirely agree with everything you said. I just would add that that is also partly on Cruz. Um, as in, Cruz got where he got in Iowa and on March 1st, based on, based on everything you just said, based on, the, based on the persona that he cultivated over the past four, four years, based on his support for the shutdown, based on this anti-establishment, anti I'm going to go to D.C. and make their life miserable attitude. But once it became clear that it was um, down to him and Trump, Cruz didn't really, I mean, it, it's not a question of him changing his positions, but he didn't really even try really uh, courting the people that he had, that, 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 that could maybe gone again on his side. I think there were plenty of reports of, um, there were plenty of reports of Cruz being unwilling to really ma uh, to mend fences or to reconcile with the people who he was essentially in war with for four years. And um, he, Cruz was essentially unable to transcend um, was unable to transcend the the ultra-conservative persona that he had cultivated and that got him to Iowa. He was unable to transcend that at the moment where he needed it and at the moment where he needed to go from being the candidate that got a plurality of the vote in places like Iowa um, to to getting majority support in what had become a quasi-two-person race. And Wisconsin maybe threw us off a little, but ultimately strength in the areas around in the very conservative areas um, of the Milwaukee suburbs were not necessarily an indicator that he had transcended it at all. Um, so I think just all, all ultimately, Cruz, um, Cruz, so you're right that this is why the establishment was state anti-Cruz, but it also speaks to Cruz, Cruz's inability to, 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 to be more than what he was in the final weeks of the campaign. Um, so let's talk a little bit about... Um uh, the Democratic race, obviously. I mean, I know we've <laughs> tended to give a little bit of short shrift um, uh, to the Democratic race because of the lack of drama. But nonetheless, I thought it was slightly dramatic that Sanders won in, um, in Indiana by 5%. Um, um, given the fact that all of the polls leading into Indiana had shown Clinton ahead, obviously none of this is enough to um, really move the needle for him. I mean, he's still way behind uh, Clinton in uh, pledge delegates. Um, his number of, I mean, I think you'll, you, you probably have all the numbers on that. Um, so he doesn't really change the math, but he's still winning contests this, this late in the process. And I think that's, that's, that's interesting, especially in light of what's happening on the Republican side where things seem to be and have wrapped up. 
Yeah, so for four weeks now, I've been saying this is a mirror image of 2008, as in there's this bizarre two-part two part, um, lead story we need to specify. One, that the one that um, Sanders is winning states, but uh, Sanders winning state, just as Clinton was winning state eight years ago, that's number one. And number two, he's actually falling back further in what matters overall, which is delegate count, just as Clinton was falling back further at some point when she wasn't really closing the gap anymore, despite her, um, despite her victories in, in 2008. So the same thing happened this time. Um, so it's kind of, again, mirror image at the state level because Clinton had won Iowa, uh, sorry, Clinton had won Indiana um, in 2008 against Obama in early May, but by too small a margin to really threaten his delegate lead. And that was kind of the big moment, the big coda where, um, the big coda where, um, that night was because where Obama's lead became uh, mathematically much stronger than um, it had before. Same same thing now. So as you said, Sanders won by five percent, but he needed to win sixty four percent of all remaining delegates. Um, so his five percent victory was just not enough. So he fell. So the number, the share of delegates he needs going further, um, uh, grew from sixty four percent to sixty five. 0.5%. So that's to get a lead in pledge delegates. Um, but Sanders has been trying to turn the math around. And he he's, he's, so his argument in the past week has been that it is now clear that the Philadelphia Convention will be contested. So what he means by this is that Clinton cannot get to Philadelphia with a majority of pledged delegates. As in, when Philadelphia starts, there's no official guarantee that she will get a majority of delegates because her lead will need the superdelegates to complement. So this is true um, if you look at the math. So Clinton needs only uh, only 36% of delegates, of pledged delegates left to have a lead among pledged delegates, but she needs 71% of all pledged delegates left to have a majority made up of just bound delegates. So, so to satisfy Sanders' definition of what a contested convention would be. So obviously she will not win 71% of the delegates left because that would essentially mean winning the remaining states by, 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 by 40 points, which just doesn't seem um, likely. I'm just not really sure what this means or what, or, what, or, or what this is meant to show in terms of Sanders' ability to win the nomination um, other than to lay, to lay the groundwork only to make everything depend on his call for superdelegates to back him, to say, yes, he's essentially conceding that Clinton will get to Cleveland with a majority of pledged delegates and saying, um, this is still, I still have a road to the nomination because superdelegates are going to back me. Yeah, what is his argument to superdelegates? I mean, it seems like he's been a little all over the map. He's, he's gone from saying... Um, vote for me superdelegates because I'm the more electable candidate and you should overturn the primary vote in your state to now he's saying you should vote with the primary vote. So what, what, what is his argument there? Yeah, so this week, so you're right that there, there seems to have been a shift from an argument of electability to, um, to a reflecting voters' will argument. So this week he said that, that the superdelegates in state were either... Um, so either uh, Secretary Clinton or myself has won a landslide victory, those superdelegates ought to seriously reflect on whether they should cast their superdelegate vote in line with the wishes of the people of their state. So that so his argument seems to be there are all these superdelegates, they should essentially no no longer be um they should no longer be 
unbound in a sense, but they should have to, they should essentially have to vote based on how their state voted as essentially as a winner-take-all addition to the winner's total. Um, the problem with this argument is that if, um, if superdelegates were to vote based on who their state voted for, as in um, if we just do what, what I just explained, it, Clinton would win a majority of the, of the superdelegates. But it wouldn't be very much suspense there. If anything, it would reduce the uncertainty because it would, it would, reduce because it would just uh, tell us who the superdelegates are voting for. I, uh, I made analysis this past week for, uh, for 538 of, of how the Democratic delegate race would look under alternative rules. And one of the possible alternative rules was just using the, the GOP rules. Um, and Clinton's lead tripled. Uh, Clinton's lead in pledge delegates tripled from about two, 250 to about 900 um, if we convert to GOP rules. And the major reason for that was the winner-take-all rules, was that the winner-take-all rules suddenly made Clinton win the, the vast majority, um, if not all delegates in, in many of the big states she won, and for instance, Florida or Ohio. So, and and if we applied the the, uh, the Sanders rules, we would we would essentially get to the same result. So, so Sanders' argument is a little confusing. So, I think I want to bro broaden this up a little and and just say that my sense is essentially what's happening is that Sanders is being asked how he can win, and so he has to find a response if he wants to stay in the race. So this the. So the Sanders campaign may want to stay in the race for other reasons than because Sanders believes that he will be the, the, the Democratic nominee. And, we, and we, 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 we could talk about what those reasons might be. But if, but if he wants to be heard making any of those other cases, if he wants to be heard arguing for the, for, for the platform, for VP choice, for trade, he needs to be able to answer the question of how I can win, right? And so essentially the Sanders camp feels like they have to argue that if he wants to stay in the race, the superdelegates, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean um, that we should take that entirely seriously as much as this is just his, the way he's, the, this is just the, the method he's using to get to the other things that he wants to talk about. So do you think that Trump now being the presumptive Republican nominee actually changes the dynamics at all on the Democratic side that there may be a movement among Democratic voters to say, hey, Hillary is the, is the nominee, we need to move to the general election. And as a result, um, they may start voting for Hillary in the same numbers as they started to vote for Trump on the Republican side. Uh, I'm, and I'm not sure there's going to be a, going to be a meaningful shift. Um, I also don't think there's going to be meaningful pressure on Sanders for at least until the voting is over, in part because there's only a month left of voting. Um, and 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 the same thing happened in 2008, where Clinton was on very shaky ground when it came to math, starting in in, in May. But but then she but but then she didn't drop out until until June. And I think it was understood that um, Clinton herself was was um, Clinton herself had kind of changed the rhetoric and, and was coming to terms with the fact that she was going to lose. Even though you know a, a lot of the controversial moments in 08 came during that period between May and June where Clinton had kind of given up on the hope of the nomination. The famous comment where um, she brought up uh, RFK's assassination in response to a question of why she was essentially still in the race was was in late May. So it was after the moment where supposedly the, supposedly the nomination had been virtually wrapped up and she was just finishing up um, the campaign. Um, 
and I, so I feel like at least until the the voting is over, there will not be a particular amount of pressure on Sanders. I think things change if he is serious about staying in the race after California uh, and DC vote in mid June, um, which which if as in if if the parallel to wait ends there, if if Sanders follows up his promises to stay in the race until the convention by actually doing that after the voting, mm. then I think we're talking about the very difficult situation in terms of what uh, the, 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 the Democratic Party will do. But I think Sanders still has hope of getting everyone to vote, making sure that making sure that this you know, push to push the party leftward, um, he gets people to do it in California, which, you know, is the biggest state in, in the country and one that has a history of uh, left-wing politics so i just wonder like how much of this has to do with proportional allocation um Uh rules and that that that, uh, you know sanders has used the argument we need to um accumulate as many delegates as possible to have as big of an impact on the platform as big of an impact on the convention and the tone of the convention as possible and in a way that doesn't exist on the republican side if trump were to win every state from here on out and were to accumulate the vast majority of delegates, Cruz would then have no more leverage at the convention than he has today. Um, so I just wonder, like, you know, whether as we as Republicans might consider and we'll, we'll kind of wrap up soon here with with a discussion of what Republicans might consider doing and next steps um, for the Republican Party. Um, but I just wonder, is there are the rules uh, around the delegates shaping the calculations, the very different calculations that are happening on both sides about whether to drop out, whether to stay in, um, because the fact is, yes, Sanders could keep accumulating mean, if he wins 40 percent of the delegates that are outstanding. It's still far short of what he needs, but it's not bad. Um, it gives him a better end result um, at the convention and it gives him more leverage uh, over the platform and all of those things. What do you think of that? No, I think that's absolutely right. So I, I just looked up the number of delegates in California. Uh, the pledge delegate, it's 475. Um, that's a lot of, of delegates. Obviously, A, because it's the biggest state, and because it has, it, it's going to have more delegates because it's, it's a bluer state than average. Um, so if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, that's almost t- 10% of the, de- uh, of the convention hall will be made up of California delegates. So, that, so if Sanders has any hope of influencing um, proceedings, influencing the mood, influencing the, uh, the platform discussions, um, influencing, um, and I keep reading that he might want to specifically push uh, a, a platform points on trade um, at, at the convention. If he wants to have this influence, the, this part of delegates in California is just very important. And, and as you were just saying, if it was a Republican rules, he would, he might be facing a situation where he wins none of them. But um, even if he loses California by, uh, even if he loses California by 10, 10%, which isn't even, isn't even clear based on the polls, it's, it, looks, it looks like Clinton has an edge, but uh, it looks still competitive, that, uh, that, 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 that will still give him about 200 extra delegates just in California. So I think that, that's, I, I think when you think about the reasons that Sanders is staying in, and what he can still get in the next month, I think that does uh, that does explain a lot, and, and it, it does also raise the question of whether he actually does intend to remain an, uh, an active candidate past California um, in early June. Um, so, so as so as you said, uh, we want to be able to look ahead a little because this might be our last regular podcast, but that's called because it's called floor fight and. 
the floor fight of, as to the nomination doesn't really seem like it's going to pan out as we expected. Um, but that doesn't mean that there will not be any floor fights um, or any convention intrigue um, in Cleveland in, in July. Um, so the, so a cruise, so the spokesperson just tweeted um, yesterday that the convention is about more than one person. We need a conservative platform and rules. Cruise will have a voice in both. So my simple question is, what are we supposed to be looking at going ahead? Um, so there's two months before Cleveland. What would happen before that, and what is and and what are the things that we're supposed to watch in Cleveland that uh, that might lead to intra-party fighting, intra-party intrigue, intra-party drama? So it's it, all of what we've been discussing over the last few weeks is still up until the end has continued to to happen um, in terms of the convent at the conventions in states at the delegate selection level. Cruz was continuing to win. Now, I, it should be noted that in the last week, um, you know, in this last weekend's contests, um, that Trump did have some wins in some states where he had won overwhelmingly, particularly in Massachusetts and Delaware, where there were Trump-friendly states where there was really no Cruz infrastructure at all um, and where Trump had, had won nearly all of the delegates there um, to begin with. Um, but in states like Virginia, Arizona, both states that were won by Trump, um, those delegate, those at-large delegate slates um, from um, the convention uh, in at the state party convention, 10 of the 13 went uh, to Cruz. And in Arizona, a state also won in a winner-take-all fashion by Donald Trump, um, also a very pro-Cruz delegation. What this means is that um, while Ted Cruz is no longer going to be an option um, for, um, you know, for them to get over the 1237 um, delegates um, to get over himself, um, those are still potentially Cruz supporters and they are not Donald Trump supporters. And as a result, you have a, a delegates to the convention who are uniquely not aligned with their nominee in a way that probably hasn't been true in any other election cycle so far. Now, there's obviously maybe only so much that they're going to want to do, um, you know, to gum up the works um, for Trump at the convention. But there are three things that they could potentially could do. Um, and um, obviously kind of, in, you know, kind of one of them is the rules package. Um, nonetheless, I mean, I think that there's been some talk out there should we unbind delegates should we say let everyone vote their will obviously this would seem pretty drastic and undemocratic if that were to happen although i, I think we do i still want to potentially talk to some folks who advocate for that position because i think it's a very interesting argument um, to be making but nonetheless in theory if they wanted to and if there was a coalition there could be a rule written around um, we could just unbind or loosen up the binding somehow. Um, and as Josh Putnam said in one of our, um, in our early shows, um, there's very little you could actually do to um, challenge these things in court in the, in the span of a four-day convention. Nonetheless, without an organized cruise campaign or an active cruise campaign, very unlikely that will happen. But from a rules perspective, the, the far more interesting question is, Will there be any systematic reform for 2020? And it normally happens at the convention. In the meeting of the rules committee before the convention, we'll actually set the rules for the 2020 convention. And it used to be 
that that is the only place where you could set the rules for the the next convention um since 2008 it's been the case that you know there actually could be intra convention um by the rnc the rnc can meet to set the rules for the next convention so in terms of will there be any move to dramatically reform the rules for the next convention in light of what has happened uh, with the current nominating contest. Uh, will that happen at the convention? My sense is it's very unlikely to happen at this convention, but depending on what the election result is in November, may happen um, at um, in some point in the next um, four years, um, that there could be some move to proportional contests or um, a more democratic style system but i don't think that would happen at the convention simply because that would be seen as a, a repudiation of trump um at trump's convention um but if trump loses the election they may be more open to something like that and there's all sorts of reasons why i also think that may not happen um in that it would create i think the more drawn out process that you see on the democratic side almost needlessly drawn out in terms of clinton uh being uh not technically being the nominee this late in the game even though she continues to have the most uh delegates um secondly i think is the platform um so i think this could be the more interesting one um because trump has some very unique positions um on the wall on banning muslims from entering the u.s on trade that are at odds with most republican elected officials and so the question then becomes will trump try to force his planks in the platform and will um, republican members of the platform committee go along with that um you know will it be a trump platform or will it be a platform that um reflects what republican senators republican governors people on the ballot actually want and so that could be an interesting point of contention um, if trump doesn't necessarily have loyal delegates again these delegates are not bound to vote for the candidates positions or interests they're only bound to vote um, for them on the first ballot um, in the vast majority of cases finally the the, the large largest potential wild card again not necessarily something that we we discussed last week was the vice presidential nomination again not something that you know delegates are technically bound to vote for the candidate the nominees candidate um, for vice president it's only really a recommendation now generally it always tends to be that they approve that um, and the question would be and obviously without there being an organized cruise operation or without there being somebody to um, whip votes against a Trump VP or to organize uh, a nomination for the floor for VP um, but nonetheless Trump not having control of his own delegates to the extent that a previous nominee might probably may constrain who he picks um it may constrain him from picking somebody very controversial um if he were to pick um let's say a democrat let's say jim webb who has expressed uh, so said some friendly things about donald trump he probably wouldn't be able to do that now there's a lot of other restrictions on on, on trump's vp pick simply because most of the leading party figures in the party have already said i don't want to be trump's vp um, and so you'll probably see 
a second tier figure, somebody who's just looking to make a name for themselves, somebody who otherwise wouldn't have been considered for VP, probably fill that slot and the delegates will probably say okay to that because, well, why not? Um, so um, that that is another um, potential factor. I, I think I go back to 2008 where um, there was some talk of McCain picking his friend Joe Lieberman, obviously a, a, a Democrat, an independent Democrat at the time, and he was essentially advised not to do that because there would be a floor fight, and he was the clear nominee uh, with a clear loyal majority on the floor. Um, so uh, that's the, all of those questions. That, I mean, there's certainly all of those questions could be um, at the convention. Also, what is the mood on the floor of the convention? You know, what uh, are there... Um, are people waving Trump signs if they're not actually Trump supporters? Are, are there is there going to be a movement to try and um, showcase other points of view on the floor of the convention? You've already have some delegates saying we're going to boycott the convention if uh, Trump is the nominee, if we're forced to go. And will that also affect the ability of anti-Trump delegates to make a point uh, on the floor in Cleveland? <laughs> and I'm imagining... I know you're saying that, but I'm imagining uh, some of the prominent Republicans you can think of, you know, Rubio, Cruz, um, et cetera, ha having to be vetted by the Trump campaign and having to submit their tax documents and all this, per all this information to, to Corey Lewandowski. That, that just seems like such a, a difficult thing to imagine for these people who are very cautious to agree to give all this personal information that, that is, you know, meant to be private. Um, to, to the Trump campaign that has not that has been very willing to to slip and give private information to to reporters or to crowds that just seems like an incongruous picture so so I'm, I'm very interested to know who will agree to go through the Trump betting to the Trump well betting it's process. not only that Trump will be receiving classified intelligence briefings in a few yeah. weeks yeah um, so that that is that one one other point maybe maybe more seriously that. Uh, the, my reaction is that this is maybe another reason why Cruz made a mistake by dropping off, by 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 and by dropping out immediately. Is that if there is to be any any moment at the convention where Trump does not get his will, um, it will require um, you know it will require a, a, some kind of vote, some kind of anti, some kind of skeptical majority. And now that he is essentially sure of winning every state that is left because no one else is running, including the winner-take-all states of South Dakota, um, Nebraska, Montana, um, that that just increases the that just may makes it more difficult for there to be um, anti-Cruz for there to be uh, not an anti-Trump majority necessarily, but a, a, a Trump skeptical majority, a majority that is willing to at one moment or another put the brakes on something that Trump. That Trump wants, and not not just in the states, also in the selection processes of convention. This Cruz is no longer going to put in the effort, presumably, of making sure that his own supporters are elected, elected delegates. And and this is the this is the equivalent of what we're talking about on the on the Democratic side, with, where this is maybe why Sanders is staying in the race to have an influence on the floor. And maybe this was the reason that Cruz should have stayed in longer if if this mattered to him. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting, like, what will happen in the remainder of the delegate selection process? Um, is there going to be um, is there going to be some sort of anti-Trump effort? And, you know, again, it might happen simply because, I mean, there's maybe not a lot of scrutiny on the process. And, and Trump has shifted his own messaging on this 
um, to be um, very much like I'm not even wasting. I mean, after he it was clear he was winning states um, and the momentum was on his side. I mean, he think he put out a tweet saying I'm not even wasting time on a second ballot because it's going to be over on the first ballot. Um, so question is, um, even in if you look back at t 2008, 2012, um, even after McCain had clearly sewn up the nomination, um, you clearly had Ron Paul uh, people trying to angle their way into delegate seats. Exactly. Um, and again, there's no Ted Cruz campaign. Now, you also hear um, there have been places, I think, you know, a handful of places where Marco Rubio supporters are actually still getting elected delegates, um, and they're identified as Marco Rubio supporters. So I, I'm not, I wouldn't completely rule out the fact that there could be continued efforts to, um, to elect Cruz delegates, um, or in a worst case scenario, there's some sort of, um, the Trump people have been kind of pushing these unity slates so it's a no and it's no worse than proportional to whatever the outcomes um, which seems to have been their fallback position because they can't push through a slate of that's all trump delegates so they will their fallback position particularly in places like kentucky and maine and some of these other contests has been let's well, at least elect a delegate slate that's reflective of the of the primary and caucus results mm -hmm. Um, and uh, another thing worth watching in the coming coming weeks is whether anyone emerges um, anyone emerges other than anyone emerges as a conservative third party um, candidate or, 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 or maybe a non conservative maybe someone who thinks there's an opportunity for them to make a name for themselves um, and, and now we're getting kind of out of the floor fight angle of, of this podcast but um, in terms of how the Republican Party is organizing itself. As a reaction to Trump, I think that's that's the decisive question. So the first deadlines, the bat, the first the first deadlines are actually coming up uh, very soon, um, which has to weigh in on the minds of anyone who is interested, if there is anyone interested in this at all. Um, but is this something that that as you've heard, yeah, that, that you've heard a lot about Patrick, or is it something more that is is it more um, kind of an imagine like this? This imaginary, fictional, alternative scenario yeah. where things go perfectly well for anti-Trump conservatives. Like, what, what is the status I, uh, of this right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to laugh a little bit at this. I mean, uh, look, I, I, as an anti-Trump conservative, I would love to see a, a voice, um, somebody who um, we could vote for as a third-party alternative who would potentially bring out at least a few um, conservatives to vote who may have been thinking about staying home. Um, with Trump as the nominee would certainly help with Senate contests. Uh, but to date, no candidate has stepped forward to do that. And uh, there was a moment in the process where, you know, you had anti-Trump conservatives organizing and talking about a third party bid. And that shifted to let's try and get Ted Cruz nominated. Um, yeah. yeah. Let's not undermine Ted Cruz. And they kind of cast their lot with that. And that was almost two months ago now. And at this point in the process, just seems very difficult uh, to um, not necessarily. I mean, yes, there's the, the challenge of getting people on the ballot. There's a Texas deadline, um, which in a week, um, yeah, in a week. So we have in the biggest state and the second biggest state. Um, you've got, uh, you know, you have to get on the ballot in a week. Um, and so it's just, you know, there hasn't been and there hasn't been a candidate. I mean, number one, and that's sort of the, the, the number yeah. one thing <laughs> is that people are talking about circulating petitions without a candidate. On yeah. the ballot. Oh, 
are you concerned about are you concerned about the never Trump efforts that you're still part of um, uh, hurting Republicans in other in at other levels of the ballot at um, in Senate races or House races um, and because I imagine that that uh, that is one of the reasons why 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 conservatives want a third party candidate right to to have someone to vote for and get people out yeah i mean i think that that's difficult i mean it's difficult because donald trump is the nominee um and um i i think that you know with or without a third party candidate um that there has to be an effort to convince and motivate people um to get out and vote um um for Republican Senate candidates in a lot of these states um, to distinguish, um, to make the argument that they are not Donald Trump, uh, you know, backers, uh, that they are independent of both Trump and Clinton. And, um, you know, if you don't want Hillary Clinton to have unchecked power um, in 2017, you still need to come out and vote um, for their Senate candidates. Now, I suspect that, you know, and even a lot of the research that I've seen, that I, I, I think a lot of voters in these states are not necessarily buying the argument that a Kelly Ayotte equals Donald Trump, even though she has said some mixed things about endorsing Donald Trump, or a Rob Portman equals Donald Trump. I don't think that that argument has a whole lot of traction um, mm-hmm. in the states. And I also think, you know, frankly, uh, you have two very polarizing figures um, where I think that I don't think a lot of people are simply going to sit out the election. I think people are going to make a decision. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump or against Donald Trump or I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton or against Hillary Clinton. And you may have some untraditional people voting libertarian or you may have some untraditional people voting for Hillary. Um, but in the end, I don't think that um, we shall see, obviously, but I don't think we're gonna, actually going to see a dramatically lower turnout. Um, mm-hmm. in this I mean, there's also the, the, the whole reason the Trump candidacy is a problem for Republicans is that you know, no one really knows what he's going to say for the next six months. So, yes, in maybe so, so maybe if we just froze um, the campaign now, maybe, maybe people like Oyoi or Toomey or, or, or Portman could, could avoid being linked to Trump um, too closely, but if it's a scenario where Trump continues for the next six months constantly saying things that are anti-woman, anti-Hispanic, anti, um, and anti-Muslim, and every time he says something, the Senate races, the Senate races we just mentioned, enter, become become a, a proxy referenda on what Trump has said, and where Oyuri, Tumi, Portman have to constantly comment on the latest Trump. Um, comment, then, then I think we're talking about a very different situation where it does become maybe harder to disentangle um, if these candidates are, if, if these candidates, uh, unless these candidates just run away and just essentially put the situation away by refusing to back Trump anymore, and then it becomes harder to ask to like ask them about his comments, then then then, then just very vulnerable to uh, they're very vulnerable to the latest Trump. I, I think for the next if they months. are not prepared for that situation already, um, then they shouldn't be running, frankly, yeah. because they have had a lot of we've had a lot of practice over the last several months in dealing with controversial Trump statements. Yeah, um, well, just, just yesterday, uh, uh, Oyori's um, 
response, a reaction to Trump was that she was supporting him, but uh, but that she wouldn't endorse him. So my so my first reaction to that is, if you had three months to prepare for this, and this is the best yeah. you came up with, I'm not, I, you know, this, I'm, I'm not sure how well prepared Republican senators look right now if if they're relying on semantic games, the difference between support and endorse to get away, to get to get out of the, to get out of the. Of, of the anti-Trump wave. Um, and honestly, like, I mean, we have seen a, a big distinction between senators who are up for re-election and, uh, you know, currently versus those who are not, um, because I, I think there is a, a fine, delicate dance that people are doing around. Um, I also need turnout from people who are voting for, I mean, the vast majority of people who are voting for me will also be voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. And um, so you have seen frankly most of the candidates um say that uh, or say in some form they uh, are endorsing trump now whether or not you know in terms of reacting to his specific comments i think that will be more telling um you know in terms of um in terms of they could probably say i technically endorse trump and then denounce everything he says Mm -hmm. um yeah um, so maybe to close to close the last regular podcast i would want to ask you what um, what what you thought were some uh, moments in the race that that looking back look particularly important in terms of how things ended up playing out playing out for for Trump, Cruz, and Kasich, and maybe for other candidates. Um, so one, so maybe I'll start us off. The the one thing that maybe there's a particular moment, but one thing that I wonder about is what would have happened if Cruz wasn't the last person standing. So we talked earlier about how, why there were. So maybe that's like an unfair hypothetical to start with, because because he he just did much better than anyone else other than Trump. Um, he's the only one other than K- other than K- K- Kasich who won his home state, for instance. Um, so it's just hard to replace him with someone else. But given that we were talking about how he wasn't able to increase his um, increase his his appeal from the this alliance of evangelical evangelicals and and, and very conservative Tea Partiers, he wasn't able to transcend this persona he had. Um, I, I until the end, I wonder whether uh, I wonder whether someone else filling his shoes, like Scott Walker or Mark Rubio, in a two and two, two uh, in one on one race in April May, would have resulted in either a different result or a more competitive result at the end. Um, so I think that that is my one question, which also goes back to. Scott, Scott Walker's decision to withdraw in September, and what and what would have happened had he not? Uh, maybe maybe nothing maybe nothing different. But the interesting question, especially because the reason he gave for withdrawing is that he thought it was time for the anti-Trump candidates to consolidate, and he invited other people to drop out. But of course, no one else yeah. dropped out until after Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, and, and, and so in retrospect, Scott, Scott Walker's decision to get out looks even more, um, looks have even had less of a purpose than it already did in September. So, so that's my, so, so, so that's the question that I am thinking about, um, if we look back at the last seven, eight months. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you would have, within the campaign, I mean, you kind of wonder what would have happened if Marco Rubio had not, um, done what he did in that New Hampshire debate. Um, where he clearly had a momentum leading, um, becoming the sort of anti-Trump candidate in New Hampshire. And then that just collapsed the Saturday night um, when he went robotic at the, at the debate. 
and um, it opened the door for John Kasich to become uh, the moderate lane candidate or whatever, and to stay in the race or to claim some sort of victory. Um, and again, I mean, it seems like there all of these, there have been, there were all throughout the process, these clever tricks that the Kasich campaign used um, to argue that they should continue throughout the process. And they, in some ways, they got some lucky breaks that were not representative uh, at all of what ended up needing or, or, or happening. Um, but everything from finishing second in New Hampshire to then saying, oh, we're just going to take off until see you in Vermont and then Michigan. It didn't do particularly well in Michigan. Um, and then being able to stay in the race through Ohio, winning Ohio. Um, but nonetheless, Marco Rubio, had he had that momentum coming out of New Hampshire, um, he may have finished a clear second in South Carolina. Still with Trump being the number one candidate, um, but Kasich might not have had momentum coming out of New Hampshire, might have dropped out. Um, Cruz would not have would have had less of an argument in um, you know heading into Super Tuesday would have had less momentum there um, and so in a perfect perfect storm um, Rubio might have been the one alternative to Trump and without there being these two alternatives um, it didn't particularly end up dividing the map relatively well. Um, now that's a double-edged sword. I think that you know the fact that Rubio didn't do better was also a function of the fact that he didn't really specialize in any one particular wing or segment of the party. And I think very early on in the process, people were really valuing the ability to dominate certain areas or dominate contests, dominate, grab a whole bunch of delegates out of Texas if you're Ted Cruz or if you're John Kasich, really run up the score with moderates in New Hampshire. And um, But really, in the end, that type of candidacy was not able to do well across the board. And the, and the Rubio campaign was designed to do well across the board, um, but in the end did not have these standout performances, did not have actually put points on the board in terms of delegates. Um, so, I, I, you know, I had tweeted at one point what is what was required to do well early on in the process was very different than, than what was required to do well late in the process. And I could have definitely seen Marco Rubio being a stronger alternative to Donald Trump in, let's say, the Acela primaries, um, mm. potentially winning in Pennsylvania or Maryland or somewhere like that. Um, but also um, somebody who had a, a good amount of overlap with Cruz supporters um, was actually sort of a compromise choice. The problem is, again, you know, if you're sort of everyone's second choice, I mean, there was not a lot of passion behind that either. Um, so it was a double-edged sword, obviously didn't work out, but I kind of looked to that New Hampshire debate and really kind of his collapse post-Super Tuesday as a decisive moment. Yeah, and I think we it, is, it may sound like we're uh, fictionalizing the GOP race, but I think the, the things we're talking about now are things that the RNC is going to be thinking about over the next, not just months, but years, as it tries to prepare for 2020, and then it tries to draw lessons for, from 2016 and onto the following nominating race, as it did from, as it did in 2012, trying to prepare for 2016. Um, so it's never a good idea, as we have 
as we keep learning to prepare for the next convention fight by thinking of the past one. Um, so this might not be a good idea because uh, who knows what they happened in 2020. But I think questions like whether the debates, whether the debates could have been different, whether they should have been spaced differently, whether the order of states should have been different, whether Iowa again is playing too big a role or New Hampshire is playing too big a role. Oh, I think all of these questions are going to um, obviously pop up in the next years. Um, at RNC meetings, and I think the living the, the sense of what of of what went wrong when um, in the 2016 uh, presidential race will influence those decisions. I mean, I think ultimately that one part of the answer is that there was no, nothing particularly went wrong in any moment. This was just uh, you know a set of um, uh, like uh, this was uh, voter preferences, um, voter voter uh, voter issues. Um, uh, candidate positioning, the Republican Party positioning that just were yours in, in the coming. And, you know, it's obviously things could have been different here or there, but I, I don't think the RNC can just change a few rules and just produce a different outcome for next time. Um, but, but I think it's definitely going to be up, up in their mind. And I think we will talk about the possible rules in maybe in future episodes if uh, if we interview people who might have a role in that. I, I, now, let me just say that I think that uh, that's all of that's right. And ultimately, Donald Trump had the uh, you know, it's hard to say he had the best campaign because there's so many, so many things he did not do well <laughs> in the campaign. Um, but in terms of he had the best understanding of how you get attention, um, how you actually ta- really kind of talking directly to voters. Um, whereas I think a lot of um, the candidates, the other candidates were trapped in this cycle of talking to elites um, for very long stretches of the process. Um, and, um, I don't think that even in a slightly different scenario, uh, where there was a different set of candidates that were arrayed against Donald Trump, that he would not have in the end ended up the winner. Mm-hmm. So we may not get a contested convention this year, but, uh, and so we won't get a chance to test out the many scenarios that we talked about all of these weeks, including, um, the, uh, the rule 40 scenarios and the questions about how things would happen on the floor between ballots, which is which is disappointing, but it was still a fun ride to go uh, to go through all this, and 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 see where and see what the odds of a floor fight were, um, and it's not over yet. Yeah, and let me just uh, close up. Thank you for listening to our regular episodes, and we want to have a few more um, that kind of retrospectively look at um, you know what might happen, um, you know what happened in this process, but what may happen in the future. Um, but we also want to take your questions. So if you want to tweet us at FloorFight um, with the hashtag FloorFight, um, that um, we will try to get to as many questions uh, as we can in a future episode. And thank you all. Um, for listening to this brief but um, we think successful run of the Floor Fight podcast. And we will be seeing you in uh, future special episodes.